Hello everyone, this is Jacob Popio, the producer of The Apex. In this episode, it is the eighth installment of the Disruptor segment. Even though that the main focus of the segment is digital disruption, Jan and John, the Disruptor himself, felt like 2020 pitched us the mother of all disruptive curveballs. As a result, they felt that they should kick off the 2021 season of the Disruptor podcast with a bit of motivation from Gary Geller, a motivational speaker, athlete, author, Ironman, ultra-marathoner, and mountaineer extraordinaire. In addition, Gary is also the founder of Make Others Greater, a U.S. 501c3 nonprofit, servicing remote areas around the world with medical supplies, school supplies, and health initiatives. The nonprofit link is makeothersgreater.org. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for exclusive access to our highlights as well as our favorite pieces of advice. If you want to support us, there are three ways to do so. One is to donate to our cause at www.patreon.com backslash the Apex Podcast. Second, visit our merch line that is proudly partnered with Envision Clothing Company at envisionclothingcompany.com. The final one is completely free. All we ask is if you learned something from this episode or know someone that needs to hear our message, share with them. Please subscribe and hope this pushes you toward your apex. All right, we're live. What is going on, everybody? Welcome, Jan. It's great to see you. How's the snow in uh, Canton, Ohio? Hopefully it's uh, not too much here. We, uh, I actually, I was, I was, it's happy to wake up and see, because for those of you that don't know where I'm kind of located, I'm right smack dab in the center of downtown Canton. And um, outside of my one window is a direct view of the new Centennial. Seeing it covered in snow, beautiful. So this is, I'm excited because it's the first time I've really seen this much snow in downtown Canton. It's actually really pretty. Excellent. Well, anyway, let's kick this off. Uh, I see we're on the live stream. Um, I want to welcome all the Apex Chasers. This is our eighth installment of the Disruptor segment of the Apex podcast. And even though the main focus of our, our podcast is typically uh, around digital disruption and what's going on in the industry around uh, digital uh, uh, businesses and design thinking and empathetic uh, selling and things like that, I think everyone would agree that 2020 has pitched us the mother of all disruptive uh, curveballs, so to speak. And as a result, I thought it would be uh, we should kick off the uh, 2021 season of the uh, Disruptor podcast and in, in, in this live stream with a bit of motivation from uh, a gentleman named Gary Guller. He's a, a motivational speaker. He's an athlete. He's an author. He's an Ironman. He's an ultramarathoner. He's a mountaineer extraordinaire. Um, and so we have the great pleasure of, of bringing him in. But before we do, we have a lot to explore with Gary today. But before we do that, I'd like to just uh, – you know, John's going to run a short uh, two-minute film clip from uh, ABC World News. Awesome. I st- I'm, this is exciting. I'm starting to feel like Jamie from Joe Rogan. We're getting there, John. We're leveling up. All right. I'm going <laughs> to <play. laughs> play this video. All right. Two stories tonight about human achievement and the quest for overcoming obstacles, and they come from the sports of mountain climbing and golf. Mountain climbing first, and Mount Everest, which has fascinated man for centuries. It is foreboding. It is beautiful, 
It is mysterious. ABC's Mark Litke is at Mount Everest. It's been a remarkable week of firsts on the world's highest peak, but perhaps the most inspiring first today was that of 36-year-old American Gary Guller, who lost his left arm in a climbing accident four years ago. He had led a team of Texans with disabilities on a grueling 17-day trek to Everest Base Camp, a remarkable Everest first in its own right. But then Guller immediately began his own assault on the summit, the first attempt by a climber with one arm. It was treacherous from the start, as fierce winds slowed his team's advance for days. But as fast as it deteriorates, weather can suddenly improve on Everest. And after a 17-hour final push today, Gary Guller stood on top of the world. Wow. Awesome. So... I am super excited to have on our show someone that I believe truly exudes the the apex tagline, John. Ordinary people accomplishing accomplishing extraordinary things. Again, ordinary people accomplishing extraordinary things. Easy for me to say. Anyway, a little bit about Gary. He was featured as an award-winning documentary uh, filmmaker and in um, in a film called Team Everest: A Himalayan Journey and was the climbing advisor for a documentary called Sherpa Stew. Both of them are, I've watched and they're, they're excellent. I'd highly recommend them. He's also a co-author of a book called Make Others Greater, From Mount Everest to the Boardroom, Vital Lessons from Dynamic Innovators, Explorers, and Everyday Heroes that Will Inspire the Way You Lead. In addition, Gary is also the founder of Make Others Greater. It's a U.S. 501c3 not-for-profit that's serving remote areas around the world, including Nepal, with medical supplies, school supplies, and healthcare initiatives. So please welcome to the disruptor, Mr. Gary Guller. Hey, hey, everyone. Good morning. Nice seeing you guys. Namaste, <laughs> Gary. Thank you for joining us. You know, it's... Uh... I tell you, uh, you know, John, I've known you for a long time, and uh, uh, I, I, I swear to you, to everyone, when I, even now, when I watch that ABC World News Tonight clip, and I hear my name, and Charlie Gibson, and Mount Everest, and the summit, and the team that went to base camp, you know, I hope the feeling never goes away. My my hands still, they still get sweaty. I've watched this thing 20,000 times. My heart starts beating really fast, and, you know, it's just... I mean, there are a number of bumps along the along the journey for sure, but ultimately there was success. And uh, uh, just I'm just honored to share the story and start my week out, start my morning out, uh, you know, at this at this level. So we, it's great, it's great, great it. to be here. Well, good, thank you. Yeah, I, I tell you what, in prepping for this uh, this this uh, this uh, show, I, I I got real uh, nostalgic and really sort of want to go back to Nepal if I can, you know, some one of these days. Uh, it's a really special place. But anyway, hey, I have a an, another podcasting friend of mine that always says that everyone was born into someone else's story. And obviously, you have a great story. I wondered if you could give us a little bit of a I'll let you give a little bit of background, particularly even a little before the, the actual accident, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I mean, not at all. I was I mean, I was a, a teenager. Right. And I was a bit of a free spirit kind of teenager. <laughs> uh, and. You know, basically somebody took me rock climbing one day and uh, I really, really got into it, really enjoyed it. And back in those days, you know, this was in the 70s, right? In the southeast down in Carolina. 
And there wasn't many of us out on the rock. And we looked very, a little bit different from kind of everybody else in a way. And uh, a lot of people, especially in the Southeast, they weren't really quite sure how to sort of take sort of the rock climbing community back then. And mm -hmm. I really got, a, I, re I just really got into it. And some really wonderful, wonderful, I mean, they were probably old guys, you know, they were 18 or 19 at the time, right? <laughs> Took me under their wing and uh, just kind of showed me the ropes and uh, not just necessarily the ropes literally on the rock face, but kind of another way of looking at life and how you should appreciate, you know, the, the, the feeling that you get when you're in nature, when you're on the rock, when the sun is on your back and you get to the top and then you sort of enjoy and celebrate, you know, together. Uh, and one of my first jobs, John, was, uh, and I was just I still stay in touch with this gentleman. And one of my first jobs was as a assistant to a, for a nonprofit, and what we did, we went to a very, very poor uh, side of town, and we would take some kids that either, you know, had lost their father or their mother or didn't have any parents at all. We would take them on a rock climb, just way out of their environment, uh, just a short, you know, climb and a short repel. And uh, you know, I was fascinated. Even at God, I was fifteen, I think, maybe sixteen at that time. But I was so fascinated when you would see these kids that they've really had never experienced anything like that in their life ever. And their eyes would light up and then they would smile and then you would hear them talking about it as you was, you know, descending down the trail back to this band that we had hired and just like they were just way over the moon. And, you know, my hope that just that experience, you know, offered them some, I don't know, some self-motivation, some like success, you know, just something different out of their norm. And, you know, from then on, really up to the accident, uh, you know, I just continued to climb and made multiple trips out west, went to Europe and always was searching for sort of colder weather, deeper snow and, uh, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries as much as I could. Uh, and then, of course, you know, when I put the expedition together uh, with some friends down into Mexico, you know, my whole life, I mean, it just... I mean, it came to, <laughs> came to a, uh, uh, it came to an abrupt end, you know, on Pico de Orizaba, uh, quickly. So yeah, tell us about that. I, I, I um, obviously you were in Mexico. How old were you again? You were. I was. Uh, I, was I think I was nineteen. I always 19, say I always so say twenty, but I was. I was. I think I was a nineteen. So you were. Yeah, you were still a baby. Oh, uh, I was still a baby, you know. But we, you know, we put this expedition together. We we're going to the three volcanoes there, and uh, you know, our first one was Pico de Orizaba, and there were a few friends, and you know, it was kind of back in those days. You know, it wasn't that you just wrote the check, hopped on a plane, and you went to the Himalayas, you went to the Alps. Really, there was some, I think, much more respect in a sense that if you really wanted to climb in the Himalaya, you really needed to kind of pay your dues a bit. And, you know, Mexico was kind of that next step. And then, of course, we had South America on, on the calendar for soon thereafter. And then, of course, hopefully into Europe, into the Alps. Uh, and then, you know, maybe, you know, God willing, to the Himalayas. And, uh, but I, I'm, I'm near the very top of what is up. I could see the... I mean, I could see the summit and uh, I mean, it's hard now to even to really still talk about it. But the, the, you can, if you can imagine almost every color that your brain can come up with, right? That's how it seemed to me at that time. I had never been this high in my life and I saw the summit, I knew. And I remember thinking, it's like, my God, Gary, this is that next step. You know, that's a, this is that next step. And as soon as I had that thought, 
my friend, my friend yells out, color, I'm falling, color, I'm falling. And I looked back very quickly behind me and he had basically come off the, this little ice step and was falling backwards. So I immediately went down into the ice to try to stop his fall with my ice axe and we're hooked together, tied together on the same rope team. And before I could do that, he pulled me off the ice and then I pulled my climbing partner and best buddy off the ice and uh, got 1,500, maybe 1,600 feet later, we just stopped. And on the second day, I lost my best friend. And, uh, you know, and thankfully, you know, a day and a half after that, some folks found us. And, uh, you know, my, my family was on the East Coast, so they flew me basically to Duke University as fast as they could. And my other friend went to California, his family was in San Jose. And, uh, you know, the doctor coming in after sort of laying there for a few months and saying, you know, I've been a neurosurgeon for 30 plus years and the damage is so extensive in your spinal cord that your left arm and your shoulder uh, is never going to be the same and it's never going to come back. And, you know, you know, as you were saying, you know, I was 19, 20 years old, you know, I was a kid. <laughs> I was a kid. I just wanted to climb freaking mountains and travel the world and experience people and culture and lands. I never thought I'd be laying on my back and a neurosurgeon coming in. It was the whole, one of the hardest things I've ever had to hear uh, from anyone in my life. Uh, and I was lost and I was lost for a number of years after that. I can imagine. I, I can, I mean, talk about the ultimate disruption as a 20 year old, right? You've got your whole, I, I was doing some climbing in the uh, Sierras at that time uh, in the, in the seventies. And, and I, Important, you know, they were mostly 14,000 foot, 13,000 foot peaks. But I mean, yeah, it, it was, I was fortunate. Uh, nothing ever catastrophic happened. But I, a couple of close calls where a climbing friend of mine was above me and, you know, stepped on a, a, a loose rocks and a big rock avalanche would come tumbling down. And, you know, fortunately, you know, would go by me by a, a foot or two. But, you know, if it was a, six inches one way or the other, I could have easily been uh, down at the bottom of that, that, that slope as well. So um, amazing story. Um, and so tell us what happened. So obviously you're, you're 20 years old. You, they amputate your arm. You still got the, once, I mean, I'm like, I mean, I'm 62 years old and I still got the climbing bug, right? right. So I know you can't get it out of your system. <laughs> uh, and I am nothing compared to what the kind of stuff you were doing. So then what happens? Then, uh, <laughs> You know, uh, like I said, talking about, yes, I was this disrupt disruptor for a number of years. I mean, I still, when I look back, uh, you know, I was just doing things that I, I can't even imagine. I'm just not proud of that period of my life. And it went on for, you know, four or five years, too long, really. And uh, I eventually said, you know what, enough is enough. I'm starting over. And I went back to where I was born. I went back to England. And just wanted really to start a whole nother life and not necessarily at that time, really, I didn't want to be associated. You know, there was press about the accident. You know, a lot of people knew about it. It was like, or that almost defined me. And I was like, I'm not tired of telling the story back then, but it seemed like that was the only thing people wanted to hear. So I decided just to start again. And uh, my grandfather was still alive at the time and he, uh, lived in the in the in England, and I remember he came up to me one day, and he knew that I had been up to to no good, and and he looked at me, you know, and he put these big British builders' hands around my face, and he was like, "Here, you gotta, 
basically he's like, you got to get your shit together. And if there's not a person in the world that has climbed some of the highest mountains with one arm, he said, be the first, be the first. And, uh, you know, that's when it started. I mean, that's, I eventually, I started then going to North Wales, Scotland, uh, with meeting new friends. And then, you know, a mountaineer sort of took me under his wing for, for a short time and we adapted and tried different things. And then eventually got in the mid nineties, I got that opportunity to go to the Himalayas and, uh, life hasn't been the same since on so many levels, right? Just my first minute landing in Kathmandu, you know, I mean, in a sense, that was, oh, that, that was almost enough. That was almost enough. And then to go on your first trek and then try to, you know, I was on a low sea expedition back in 97 and really uh, fail, <laughs> but learn a lot at the same time and meeting the Sherpa people, as you know, and the culture and the colors and the cuisine and even the smoky tuk-tuks, right? <laughs> just, you know, it was just, it was what I needed in my life. It was, it was what I needed to kickstart, relight, you know, that, that positive avalanche, I call it sometimes, right? Just relight yourself again. And, you know, and I kept going back. I mean, I was hooked. And, uh, you know, and I still keep going back so much as I could. And to be able to tie, you know, part of my uh, sort of adventure life into and with the corporate world and then with the nonprofit and, you know, try to do some good, I think, in the world. Uh, I don't know if there is a better way to, for me anyway, a better way to to live. Cool. I'm going to kind of hop in on, on this portion here, John. Um, okay. So I... Uh, and John has heard this story hundreds of times. I um, was I borderline also getting into some things that I probably shouldn't be getting into as a teenager, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so we're uh, disruptors. Started and then started getting started getting caught, and you know, I essentially had the same conversation with my grandfather. He was actually the one that pulled me out of my pit um, and told me, "Get your shit together." He's the one that told me, "You know, you're going to join the Air Force." And I always say. My grandpa pulled a, a card that is uh, irreversible because he's on his deathbed. And he said, this is my final wish. Oops. You know? And so that's I have his dog tags tattooed on my chest. I go to visit him in the cemetery at least once a quarter because talking to that man is my entire inspiration for everything that I do. So I wanted to say, Gary, I 110 percent feel that when you when you said that the hair on the neck on the back of my neck was standing up mm. um, and then. For all of us, you know, as what I really view as our charge as disruptors is to be that person that sparks a conversation like our grandfather sparked with us to other people. Because sometimes people get so caught in the weeds of their own lives that they need that objective vision to come in from the outside and repaint what they're capable of and readjust their lenses, you know, adjust their their prescription on their glasses so they can see more clearly. And the fact that Went through what you did, you know, you had that period of time where you're off track and then you be ripped back by an objective person like your grandfather. And then both of us, and, and there's so many millions of other people out there that have experienced the same thing, feel this now burning passion and this charge to go at and impact lives. So 
I just wanted to throw that in there that, you know, that, that really just emotionally punched me in the face. So I agree. I, I'm grateful for that on an amazing Monday morning here on Disruptor. Cool. All right on. So back to uh, the corporate world you mentioned. So a little story about how you and I first met. Um, I think it was 2010. So I think you were, you know, you were still relatively early in the, the motivational speaking uh, gig. Um, we, I think you were at a, we were at an IBM uh, regional sales kickoff meeting of some sort. Um, if you probably don't remember, I had just been promoted to management. So I had, uh, if you will, needless to say, I had was facing what I would call a Everest uh, caliber uh, challenge of, of trying to lead a, a set of sa- a sales team here in the Eastern United States. And um, you, you know, you gave your, your, your pitch and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but you know what, that was great. And obviously you, you, you hit my, my mountaineering bug accord, if you will. But what was really cool, and, and you, to be honest, you were the one that motivated me to get to Nepal in 2014. But what was what I really enjoyed about meeting you is we, at the end, we sat around a table, we had a couple of beers, or I don't know if you remember this, you know, we, you know, we, we shot the shit, and, you know, we were talking. I mean, the thing about climbers, Jan, or mountaineers is we can talk about mountains all day long, right? Well, you know, you know, and it's just one of those things. It's just, it's sort of, I don't know what it is. It gets in our blood and we will sit there and we'll BS for it. So that was sort of how you and I met. And that was 2010-ish. So it's been almost 11 now, almost 11 years, over 11 years or over 10 years. So anyway, that's sort of the, the backstory on my end. But what I wanted to get to next, obviously, is, is, the, is the expedition. So you, uh, as you say, were probably the, or is, you know, probably the leader of the most diverse team ever to reach Everest Base Camp. And for those of you that aren't uh, in sort of into the mountaineering uh, world, Everest Base Camp in itself is is a feat. It's of seventeen thousand five hundred ninety eight feet. So I mean, it's it's way higher than any mountain I've ever climbed. Um, and so, tell us a little bit about the uh, how you came up with the idea. That's what really got me. In my world, we'd call that a big, hairy, audacious goal or a BHAG. Uh, right. and, and a little bit about the team and what you did and how it came about, right? And because it's it's fascinating, I think. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. Thanks for just everything you just said, John. And uh, I just want to also, <laughs> I mean, I got to, I got to give a shout out to the organization you work with. You know, IBM. IBM's been a huge supporter of me over the years. I mean, from the very very get go, uh, it's one of just a handful of the early companies way back in two thousand three that you know, invited me to their campus there in Austin, Texas, and uh, said they, you know, wanted to be involved with the messaging with the expedition. And, you know, their only sort of requirement was that I wasn't allowed to say that they were a sponsor, but they didn't have a problem with uh, me saying that they were a partner. Uh, and they wanted me to come back, if it was successful, to come back to the <laughs> one of my first presentations, the lunch cafeteria in Austin, Texas. Texas oh. and just and just share the story with them, and I mean I could go on for an hour then or more. I could go for hours about then who I met at that uh, presentation that I did and how our friendship developed and then how I was invited to Florida and then some other senior people at IBM saw me invited me to another event that led me to our monk and then it went on and on and on. So I'm grateful to IBM for their support and their continued support. I mean for sure. Uh, but you know, it kind of in a in a, in a in a nutshell, I was invited. I went. I tried Everest in two thousand one, 
and I didn't make it very far. I mean, honestly, I just physically, I thought I was okay, but mentally I, I just wasn't there in the right headspace, you know? And, uh, I remember getting off the plane. I was living in Austin at the time, getting off the plane. And there were a lot of people from the community, uh, just kind of rooting me on and telling me how I inspired them, not because of how far I got on Everest, but because I got on the plane and actually just tried, you know? And, uh, I got invited a few weeks after that to give a, a slideshow out in West Texas in El Paso. And uh, at the end of that little, basically PowerPoint, you know, here's the Rockies, here's Mexico, here's Europe, you know, the lights came on in the back of the room. I saw this gentleman and he could only move one part of his body, but I could tell he wanted to ask me a question. And I walked to the back of the room and I suggested, what is your question? And I could see it was a person with quadriplegia and, and had limited movement. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Guller, would you ever take somebody like me to some of the places that you've been to? Oh, right. And immediately, you know, in my mind, I was like, not only does he have this pretty severe physical challenge, he's going to, I think he's a little bit freaking nuts too, right? <laughs> and we're great friends. We're, Fits we're right great in friends. with us, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, and he is a little bit crazy. I mean, he's a lot crazy. But he's Gotta a be. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful person. But, uh, and then, you know, I thought about it. And, you know, I always say that one of the greatest lessons I've learned from the Sherpa people is that they have this wonderful ability to look beyond what they see in a human being. They have this ability to look towards somebody's heart first and not look towards somebody's heart, but they have a wonderful ability. You feel like they're looking at you and to your heart and inside of your soul. And, you know, I thought about it and I was so inspired by this event because it was an event on equality and equal access and accessibility and half the people in the audience had some sort of physical or cognitive challenge. But it wasn't just those people that inspired me. It was their employers were there, their teammates were there, the partners or husbands or wives. They were all there. And it was just, just this collective force of like just, just, just compassion and kindness and love and just people wanting to explore and try to, to have a, whatever a normal life is, but have an equal life to somebody, let's say, that doesn't have a physical or a cognitive challenge or as much as possible. And I decided to put, I decided I want to go back to Everest. And uh, I was so blown away by this event that I decided, you know, I want to take a group of people representing just about every type of person you can possibly imagine, including those with physical challenges, including those who have never been on a freaking camping trip before. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know how to do things back in those days. You know, at that time, I think I was like minus 275 bucks in the bank. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, did did my research and I put out this little PSA. It probably wasn't in the right format or anything. And uh, but uh, one radio station picked up on it and said, you know, I'm going back to Everest and I want to take a team with me. And within within God, within four or five weeks, I probably had a team of 30 members and 14 of those had varying degrees of physical cognitive challenges. Uh, and again, I mean. I'm very appreciative of the better situation I'm in now, but I'm not joking at all. I was at minus $200, $300 in the bank. And I had this idea and this team all ready to go. And I put pencil to paper and this thing was going to cost near what, three, four, five, almost half a million dollars. I can imagine. So, so you imagine, you know, I got to go knock it on some doors, right? And I hadn't been in Texas for very long and people that understand Texas will get this. You know, Texas is one of the greatest states, I think, in the country, because once you get into into the sort of, I think, the corporate world, the business folks, 
and you earn their trust, they 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 never forget that, and that is so very true. Uh, but it takes a while, and at that time, my hair was a little long. You know, I had this funky sort of English Carolina Texas, you know, <laughs> global accent. You know, I don't think I owned a pair of shoes at the time. And imagine, you know, you're a CFO. I mean, you'll get this job or Jan, you know, you're a CFO of an organization. And then through the door comes this guy with shorts, long hair, his, his hair pulled back some old, like, barn age from the 70s. And sits down in front of you and says, hi, Mr. Mr. CFO. My name's Gary Gar. I got this great idea and I need you to get involved with it. Okay. Yes, sir. Please tell what your story is. Well, I'm going to be the first guy to stand on top of the world with one arm. And you know what? Before that, I'm going to lead the largest cross diverse team ever to Mount Everest Base Camp. Some of some of the folks are in wheelchairs. How about writing me a check for half a million dollars? <laughs> Woo. Man, and, I thought I've had some tough pitches in my life. That is <laughs> but, but that, the, thing is, the thing is, is that like like you're you're saying that and and I'm connecting with it because I mean that's I walk in in boots, jeans, belt buckle, you know, I'm just me. You walk in, you're just you. And the thing I think is beautiful and what you're going to really give people confidence to do after this episode is understand, you know, if you truly are passionate, 110% believe in an idea, and sometimes it's just walking by faith and not by what you can see because there's going to be like, somehow this is going to come together. I don't know how, but this is what is on my heart to get done. Something like the the bricks are going to lay themselves. And that was to give you the confidence to go into a room like that. And then those CFOs are looking back and saying, is this dude nuts? I feel like, is he, is he serious? But then at the same time, they're like, in order to have that much conviction, in that much conviction, you have to be ready to take it all the way through. And so I would actually probably say that there's a little bit of confidence or at least curiosity that gets spiked on their end. They're like, is it, what if it is possible? Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the number one, it took me a little while because I was like, why are you not going to be part of this? I can't understand why you would not want to be part of this. But I didn't know the whole deal about really sponsorships, you know, at this level and partnerships. And, you know, I had a number of folks and, uh, you know, I've I mentioned the organizations before that said, hey, they'd be happy. I mean, financially, it was a tough uh, proposition in the sense that things can go horribly wrong, right? In the mountains, mountaineering, altitude, even fly and get in there, etc. Getting to Lukla alone is a, is a, is a life threatening, risky uh, adventure, right? Uh, yes, I mean, totally right. And who, what company wants to see, you know, their logo or their corporate name, you know, on 27 expedition bags, you know, 3,000 feet down in the bottom of the canyon? with a few, few people laying beside them. That's not a real good image to project, right? But uh, but I did figure out really quickly, I had a number of organizations that said, you know, explain to me why they couldn't financially get involved as a sponsor, but they could get involved as a partner. And, you know, I was born at night, but I tell you guys, I wasn't born last night. And once I figured that part out, I was like, okay, well, I can start leveraging these partnerships into perhaps some other people that mm-hmm. don't mind either anonymously throwing in some cash and basically that's how it finally finally came together uh and barely barely (laughs) so tell the audience like how because i know exactly how i sort of know the proportion of of trekkers to porters to sherpas right so but give them give the people a little feel of you had how many how many people were you trying to take up i forget it's uh 16 no we we, we had 30 sort of 30 we had 30. We had 28 Westerners. And then I just didn't want it to be just about, you know, Americans, right? Or even we had a couple of Canadians as well. 
We also had two Sherpa. Uh, those guys were awesome, man. I, <laughs> I, I met so many people like that, those two that you had in the movie. Uh, in my, I, I'll send you a picture. I, I swear to God, I met the guy's brother, right? Right. No, of course, and he probably was related. I mean, all yeah. the Sherpa generally are of the same family. But yeah, I mean, one one of the guys, both were bitten by cobras in the village. So one guy had, and that's a quick amputation in the village when you get bitten by a cobra. So one guy had, he was missing his right arm and the other guy was missing uh, his left leg. And they were also part of the expedition. And I swear on my life, I remember we were at, the, at a hotel near Bodanoff in Kathmandu. And I had never met this gentleman before, but Nima... Nima Dawashirp, a dear friend of mine, had told me about these gentlemen before. So I kind of knew what to expect. But think about this. So the floors in the Hyatt Hotel actually are uh, not marble, but they're some rock or something. Very, very slippery. And this, this guy is probably 60 years old. He is missing his leg. And he, come, and he comes from the village. And he cannot even walk through the foyer there in the hotel because his crutches are made of just wood with no like rubber slip or nothing under his shoulders. So he's walking and he's sliding on these heavily waxed floors. And, you know, finally he made it over and we all sat in a chair and all the team came there. And, uh, you know, we were like, we're, we're, we at least made it to Kathmandu. So we got to get up into the hills there pretty soon. Uh, but when we landed up into Lukla, as you mentioned, John, I mean, Lukla's a short takeoff and landing airstrip. The damn thing's about 73 feet long, right? And then the runway is a, a mountain face. And the other end, when you depart the village, you know, on this short takeoff and landing airstrip, is about a 3,000-foot drop-off. So you start having a whole other appreciation for when you land brakes and for when you take off acceleration, right? Yeah. And, you know, so immediately we had – so we had 30, made it to Luke Land. Then I had to immediately, we had, I'd sent Sherpa up in advance. So in the very early stages of this expedition, at any one given time, I had over 300 people working for this team. Yeah, that's, I was going to say, because that's, that's a pretty good, I mean, even our trip was, was the, the proportions to trekkers, to porters, to Sherpas was quite large. And you obviously needed more people. So let's, let's get back to, to Everest. So obviously you get this team up there and it's, it's, it's amazing. You, you break a world record, but you know, at that point you're like, most of us would have turned around and gone home, but you um, obviously decided that the next thing to do was to try to scale, scale the peak. And, and you became the first person with one arm to climb Mount Everest. Now, again, Mount Everest is 29,028 feet, so it's another 10,000 feet above uh, base camp. But for those – but to get – to start off, when you start off from base camp to get to camp one, right, you've got to go across the treacherous and infamous Kumbar Icefall. And I think you've got a really – neat story about your trip and 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 you were with it's Nima Dawa is that how you say his name yes yes Nima Dawa is your Sherpa that 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 helped you through the expedition and I think you had an experience on the ice fall that was uh probably pretty inspiring (laughs) it's like I still even when I even share the story now even when when Nima and myself talk about the story right It's, it's still hard to believe how it all sort of unfolded but you know where we left base camp and you leave very early because you want to get through the ice fall when the ice is very hard. But that ice fall is one of the scariest places in the world. I mean, there's crevasses you can't see the bottoms of. You have to cross these crevasses on these like old rinkety ladders. And there's, you know, there, there's avalanches that are happening. It's moving. It's its own life force, really. And I mean, a lot of people heard 
a few years back. I mean, we lost almost 20 Sherpa in one avalanche. You know, that's 20 Sherpas and 20 Sherpa families, kids, wives, husbands. That's, it was, it's scary. And we're about halfway through the ice fall and we hear this boom, boom, boom. And it's the sounds you don't want to hear when you're in the ice fall because generally that means that something broke somewhere, right? And we both stopped and we looked up, we looked around and we could like see where it was, but we knew that wasn't a good, a good sound to hear. So we tried to pick up our pace as much as you can, like at 18 and 19,000 feet for the first time. And then we heard it again. It was like, boom, boom. But it was like three times as loud, three times as long. And we looked up at the top of the ice fall. This avalanche is coming directly toward Nemedawa Sherpa and myself. And I mean, honestly, at that time, I, I thought it's, it's over, you know, bloody hell. You know, you've come all this way. You're very successful with the team, getting them to base camp with some enjoyment and some happiness. And she lied, Gary, before you get to, Camp one, it's your life is done. And Nima put his arms around me and he thought the same. And I put my arms around him and it was like just before the impact of this avalanche was about to hit us. Nima just, he, he, he let go, reached into his pocket and he threw something three times in the path of the avalanche. And then he quickly came back and he put his arms around me. And honestly, it seemed like it was it seemed like a lifetime. I mean, it was what, maybe six seconds, seven seconds. And then everything just stopped. Everything, it was just, and it was so quiet. I mean, so very quiet. And I opened up my eyes and I looked at Nima and I could barely see him because of all the debris, but I knew he was still attached to me and me, obviously him. And we, I wouldn't say laugh about it now because we but we're grateful but we both thought at that time this is where you go <laughs> we thought maybe this is heaven right we couldn't see anything else it's just this big cloud of like snow dust and ice and we're like this is it and then it settled and then we realized that we we made it and we were alive and as i'm dusting off the snow and the ice from nema's helmet and his shoulders I looked at him and I said, Nima, what did you throw in the path of that avalanche? What did you, I watched you, you threw something three times very, very quickly. And apparently when I went back to Kathmandu to say goodbye to the base camp team, he went back to this village by the name of Pangoche and paid a very old man. And uh, when I mean that old man, I don't mean like this guy's like 58. I mean, this guy's like 558. <laughs> and he's a llama. He's sort of a spiritual leader for the Kumbu Valley. And Neiman went back to see that man and he asked that man for a special blessing. And that 560 you know, plus year old man gave him some rice. And he told Nima, if danger comes your way, throw this rice three times in the path of the danger and you'll be all right. You know, I mean, I still have some rice that I carry with me sometimes, you know, but was it the rice? I, I don't. Dude, I'd be carrying rice too. Right? Man. And, or was it that old man, you know? But I tell you, uh, over the years, especially now, I think this story has even a greater meaning now, you know? I mean, we've had one massive avalanche last year, and it's like a continuing avalanche still going into this year. 
But what I what I got from that whole near death experience was that Nima believed in that rice, and Nima believed in that old man, and Nima believed in me, and I equally believed in him, and that is what got us through. Simple belief, belief in yourself and belief in others. Because here's the here's the gig, right? If Nima would have went this way, and I would have looked after myself and went the other way, I would not be here this morning sharing this story. We stuck together through what was almost certainly a dying situation. But we stuck together, we remained calm, but we continued to believe in ourselves. And that's why I'm here. And that's why we're still friends. And that's why we're still together. And I think in the whole world now, people have to start believing back in themselves and into other people, especially mm. as we crawl out of this massive continued pandemic avalanche, right? 100%. I'm actually, I'm going to pull up some pictures for um, just because our audience, I feel like may not be as quite well versed um, in the climbing. No, I know I had to do a little bit of research into the actual pathway. So I'm going to pull up a picture here that actually shows a little bit of where that path is. So right there, we can see that Kumu icefall above base camp. But that's like, that's really the first step you're entering the journey into actually climbing. I mean, exactly. that's kind of the first thing that you guys are going to have to get through. So your journey was almost over before it even started. Exactly. And then and there's a cut. Go ahead, John. Well, I was going to say, the one thing that, that we didn't mention is, you know, it took Gary and his team about, what, three weeks to get from uh, from Lukla up to base camp, the team of uh, the expedition team. But then you just don't turn around and start climbing base Everest. Right? You probably, I think you spent probably another two or three, probably four weeks uh, up on the mountain to just right that because you spend a week or two acclimating and then you do a couple of practice climbs. You, at least today, they, today you go up to camp one, come back down. Right. And so, you know, then you get to camp two and, and of course, then you got to deal with the weather and the weather windows. So we're talking about right. Three weeks on the, the trek to base camp. And then what, another four weeks trying to summit the mountain. So at that point in time, you're, you're basically out there for about two months. Exactly. Um, uh, and so, I mean, this is a major commitment of time. Um, there's Diwa, uh, Diwa Sherpa. Um, you know, and speaking of Sherpas, while you're pulling that up, I want to talk to you. You know, I got to give a shout out to the Sherpas that I worked with. Mm -hmm. Because when I was in Nepal, we had three Sherpas and, and five porters. And, uh, and our, 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 our trekking company was uh, organized or run by a guy named Ang Jangbu Sherpa. But our lead Sherpa was a guy named Lapsan Sherpa. And we had two other, and he was older than I was. I am, so he was probably at the time he was probably close to sixty, maybe even over that. And again, you would never know, right? I mean, he could run up and down those mountains like there was no tomorrow. And then we had a couple of younger guys, uh, Punru Sherpa and Joe Baharu. Punru was excellent. He actually spent some time in the United States, up in your part of the world, in Washington, Oregon. He climbed Mount Hood a couple of times. He's climbed up. He's climbed up. Uh, or, uh, Kilimanjaro, but yeah, a little funny story just as a reminder. So we're walking around the second day. We're st the first day is pretty easy. The second day, we're starting to get some terrain. And as Lapsang used to tell us, you never go flat in Nepal. You're either going up or you're going <laughs> right. down. Right? <laughs> little, little up, little down. Yeah. 
And it's, it's what I got. You, you'd walk up a thousand or two thousand feet and you'd come around this turn and all of a sudden you've got to go all the way back down the other side to cross some bridge across, you know, some, some, some river. But so we're, we're trekking along and my buddy's with me and he says, Hey, uh, Hunru, have you ever done this trek before? And I goes, no, this is my first time. And we were going to the Annapurna sanctuary. So we were eventually going to get up to uh Monte Pachuri base camp and then up to Annapurna base camp. And we're sort of scratching our head. And he goes, yeah, no, I don't normally do this. I'm, I'm normally my day job, if you will, is I, I do Everest trips. So my, my buddy goes, well, have you ever climbed Everest? And he goes, yeah, seven times. <laughs> and today I believe he's got three more. So I think he's up to nine or 10 uh, times up Everest. The guy was, he was great. But <clears throat> so um, that's, you know, my story about uh, Sherpas. And I want to come back eventually to the, the, to the, to the, the avalanche, but you have some, I mean, you, you were talking about the Sherpas that work with you. I said, I think one of the things you mentioned is that, you know, you started to allude to this sort of the power of the Sherpas and, and how, I mean, it's clearly impacted me. I've kept mm-hmm. in touch with these guys and I'll get another story on the, on the avalanche in a second, but, but let's, let's spend some time on the, on the Sherpas because uh, they're just incredible people. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> There's not a there's not a week that goes by that I'm not speaking to, to some Sherpa somewhere, but of course I stay in touch with Nima because he sort of looks after some of the operational stuff for mm-hmm. for the found for the foundation in Nepal. But you know something I don't know if you uh you know the very early days when I started learning about Sherpa people, you know I was like where's this word Sherpa from, right? Where's the Sherpa come from? I don't even know this word, right? I mean I've heard of Sherpa, but I don't you never hear it. But yeah. a lot of people don't realize. That Sherpa actually comes from a Tibetan word, which means, which is Sharwa. And Shar in Tibetan is East. And Wa is something from the East. And all the Sherpa came from Eastern Tibet, right? right? And English people, you know, Westerns had a problem pronouncing Sharwa, Sharwa, and it turned into Sherpa, Sherpa, right? And uh, I just love sharing that story with folks, especially those out there who never realized, like, where does that name come from, Sherpa? But, uh, but something that was incredible and an incredible experience, and you brought it up earlier, John, that when we arrived to base camp with this team, I mean, it was one of the most wonderful days of my life. I mean, by far up there, for sure. I mean, just to see the smiles, the uh, completion, the laughter, the, like, you know, these people have been told no most of their life, most of them, either from birth or from after their injury. No, 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 no. And now they're Mount Everest base camp at 17,500 plus feet, right? But... So I call down on the sat phone to my Russian friend. He flies these big MI-17 helicopters, and I wanted him to bring the helicopter up the next morning very close to base camp because we had to get back down to Kathmandu. This phase of the expedition was over. When I hung up the sat phone, Nima Dower Sherpa jumps into my tent. tent. He's like, Gunnar, I've got this great idea. Hey, before we all get to the helicopter tomorrow, why don't we all go ice climbing? In the, in the ice the farm, right? Yeah. And uh, excuse my hair there, folks. <laughs> the, uh, and and I, I remember looking at Nima and I said, Nima, can't we be happy with the success we just achieved? Why do we need to go ice climbing tomorrow? And that's when I knew he got it. I mean, Nima came from a village. He was the poorest family in the village. His father died when he was a very young man. He was carrying like 40 kilos of, of salt from Tibet to the Indian border. And I mean, he was known as the dirty boy in the village. And that's when I knew he got it. Uh, he said, Gary, look how far we've come. 
look how far we've come. The I can set up some safety line on this ice wall a hundred feet from here. Let's at least give it a shot. Let's give it a try. And I woke everybody up the next morning. He's down at the bottom of the tube of the ice wall. He had set some safety line up on this, I don't know, 40, 50 foot ice rack wall. And uh every single member of the expedition finally got over to the bottom of this ice wall and made it up to the very, very top. And if you're wondering, well, how the guys and the girls do it that were in the wheelchair? Well, the guys, the guys that had enough strength in their arms just pulled themselves up the face, up the safety line. And the ones that didn't, they just sort of made the movement that they wanted to give it a try. And it was like, this is what I sort of call Sherpa power. And it was like, oh, my Sherpa friends and even other members of the ex of the team got around the person and ins uh, assisted them. I mean, it was like top of the world teamwork and not being corny with that expression, but assisted them in a way that they almost didn't even realize that people were giving them the extra help. And when you become when you become a natural extension to somebody's desire, I think you said at the very uh, start of the conversation, Jan, that when you can be part of somebody's desire to try something new or succeed or become happier or achieve something they didn't think they could do before with without them knowing about that, that to me is a gift. And that that, that ripple effect has to be absolutely insane. I mean, the the like you said, I actually was just talking to my little brother last night because um, I'm working on a on a book. And me, Gary, you and I may need to talk about co-writing a chapter in this thing because it's going to be called Permission to Dream, 10 Keys to Unlocking Your True Self. Um, and I'm going to pull up this picture that, you know, talking about the smiles and just helping out. This is not the ice fall, but for people to get kind of an idea, you know, we've got lines pulling up people literally just willing to try to enable that dream to happen. So, so in the movie, this is the guy that's climbing up the ice fall. So if you ever have a chance to go watch the movie, you, this is the scene where he is, this is a scene where he's climbing up the mountain or up the trail, but on the ice fall or on the, on, on the ice, he, he's being pulled up by the Sherpas. And it's the look on his face is unbelievable because he is realizing that, you know, like you said, people have told him forever you can't do this. You can't do this. And then all of a sudden he's at 17,000 feet climbing, ice climbing in a wheelchair. I mean, think about that. Just, and that's uh, like when living, you're having a bad day. Living your life in a way, and, and Gary is just embodying this principle to the utmost degree, right? And living your life in a way where if you can become a positive ripple in another person's life, right? And, and, and I'm huge on this. The reason why I'm calling it permission to dream is I'm saying the dreaming takes practice. And it takes a mentor to kind of allow you to, to show you how high a dream can actually be and still be achievable. I think mm -hmm. we're in this weird place in the world where we've uh, set too many high bars when you shouldn't really set a top bar. You just set your low bar, set your minimum standard of excellence, and then don't even worry about how high you can go because you might end up at 17,000 feet. You know, you don't know. And taking that person who has not believed in themselves to 17,000 feet just allows that entire network that that person interacts with to now have permission to dream. You're, I mean, that's, you're giving people permission to dream. And that is just, 
John, every single guest that you've brought on here has blown my mind, but uh, as much as this is like a perfect way to start out 2021, perfect way to start out a Monday. I mean, I'm ready to go like kill all of these Excel sheets, spreadsheets that I need to do today. I am just beyond myself. It's like, Gary, thank you so much for coming. Mm. That was the hope here. I like I said, we all need a little motivation after last year's uh, disruptive year. Um, I want to, I'm going to try something, Jan. I want to try and share the screen. Um, See if I can do this. Browser is blocked. Your screen icon address. How do I do that? Shoot. Is there a way I can do this or what am I doing wrong? Maybe I have brought, I made a pop-up windows blocked or something. Anyway, oh, shoot. Anyway, well, um, I'll send it. Maybe we can include it in the, the re-record, but I've got a picture up on my screen. So as I mentioned earlier, I want to come back to the, the sort of another story. And I, I promise there's a segue in that that's, that, that's, uh, that's interesting, I hope, uh, to the other, one of your other works, Sherpas do. But um, so, as I mentioned earlier, I was, uh, we trekked up to Montepachuri Base Camp and then up to Annapurna in, in February of 2004. And then our way back down from um, Montepachuri Base Camp to Dublin, where we were, I think, either sleeping or tea, having tea or lunch or something, uh, a, we were coming back down and as the trail that we had just crossed over not 24 to 36 hours earlier was totally gone and wiped out by an avalanche. And I'm talking about a path of snow that was probably 50 to 100 yards long. And, of course, upwards and downwards in the mountain was just nothing but this this rock and ice snow. And like I said, if I could figure out how to show, I got a great picture of a sort of in perspective of our team. But this was the only, back to the Sherpas, this was the only time that I saw Lapsan Sherpa actually visibly, like, worried right he nothing phased him during the whole trip not not taking us sort of old cranky old man up to the mount up to the top of base camp now but this i mean he saw this and he like all of a sudden got ultra serious and said get because it was the only way we could get right we had to go across the path or the trail that was no longer there so we had to like scurry across this 50 to 100 yard uh, avalanche and had no idea if that avalanche had come five minutes ago or but we certainly knew it had just come within 24 hours. So we scurry across that avalanche and that like really, you know, opened my eyes up to, to the avalanche uh, experience um, in um, uh, that you describe um, that actually sort of segues into uh, uh, April 18th, 2014. I was actually in New York city on business and I woke up that morning and I, I, you know, that's the, that was the tragic avalanche on the icefall that killed 16 Sherpas. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the guys we were with, their day job, if you will, was Everest, not, not, the, not the Annapurna circuit. And so three of the Sherpas were up there on, at somewhere uh, at Everest, base camp, camp one. We'd, I didn't know. Fortunately, none of them were injured or hurt. But, um, but what I learned and what was life, the reason I go through this whole sort of story is because now I realized after watching Sherpa Stew that there's this very large community of Sherpas in, in New York. Mm. And obviously mm-hmm. one of them for a while was Dewa, 
Sherpa. And, you know, I just thought you'd give a little bit of, I'm curious on sort of the why and the how and, you know, what, why there, that, that actually looks just like the one we had, although that's. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a, different. that's, yeah, that's the Kumbo ice wall there. And yeah. it's very hard to actually picture in your, your, so if you look at the bottom of that picture, it's going to take you probably six to eight hours to get to mm-hmm. about the mid range. And there could be a thousand people in that ice fall, right? There could be, let's say 250 people in that ice fall. You, you would find it very <laughs> difficult to pick them out. It's just the scale, as you know, the Himalaya, the scale, and let, until you see them for the first time, right? The scale of the Himalaya is just what always just takes my breath and my heart away. Uh, but yeah, no, <laughs> thanks for, yes, bringing it. There's thousands and thousands of Sherpa in the New York community. And- I had no idea until I watched the segment on where they <laughs> where they were, you know, in, in their, I don't know what you call it, a temple or uh, their, their, their exactly. place of worship you know, grieving, if you will, for their community of, oh, of, the, of the people that were, in, you know, died in the ice fall. Yeah, I mean, it's it was it was a big loss. I mean, it's a huge loss. I mean, because as, as they all are somewhat connected and most every Sherpa knows the other Sherpa in some way, maybe not directly, but indirectly. Right. But uh, I mean, it was obviously it was a very sad time in I think, uh, history. And I think it just sort of shine you know the focus on just how dangerous and difficult when things are going well they they're going super good for everyone but things when they turn bad they can have devastating devastating effects but you know the sherpa they have a wonderful way of bouncing back and and uh, trying to make uh, even the very worst situations uh okay with it you know we've all lost Sherpas in the mountains mm-hmm. or on expeditions before for a variety of reasons. And, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's, 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 all, it's just always, always hard. But, you know, it takes, uh, you know, one trip. Maybe one day, John, we'll head up to, to, to Queens and uh, I'll, I'll give you uh, uh, an evening with, uh, with Kipa or with Nemo or Lakpo or somebody. And, you know, just bring your big boy pants on because they like to sometimes drink a lot of light beer. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that. I'll, I'll fit right in. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, I feel very, very fortunate, you know, back in the mid 90s, you know, I mean, I, you know, I got, uh, you know, keep a Sherpa, you know, his first, first visa, you know, into the U.S. And since then, his wife now is permanent resident. His daughter is over here. She's married. She's an officer in the in, in the Air Force. Uh, his uh, other daughter is here finishing university. And, you know, to go and watch them grow up and mature and become, you know, just good human beings in the world. I mean, that was a, a just a blessing. And but to go back to Queens and the stories are there. You sit on the floor, you share stories. Cause these people I have known for what, oh, 20 years plus. And it's like. It just I mean, you can hopefully see in my face, it just it makes me happy. And every time I even. FaceTime or, or WhatsApp or Skype, you know, NEMA, or it, it could be any hundreds. Sherpa. Awesome. But when I get off the phone, you know what? I always feel freaking better about myself. I feel good. They have a way of making you feel good. And I tell you, if I can pass that energy on once a day somewhere in my life, then, you know, that's okay. And that's something, John, you would attest to, that Sherpa have a wonderful way of 
even if you're going slow, you're about to get sick, or you're having a bad day, they can just make you feel that it's okay to have a bad day too sometimes. Yeah. Hey, Jan, can you, I think I figured this out. Can you see the share I did? There. So this is uh, a picture of the uh, the the the, the uh, avalanche. So you can get a perspective. There's the couple of our my fellow trekkers, and and where if you sort of make a path from the people across that avalanche, where we've got to get across that thing somehow because the trail mm -hmm. is is no longer there. So I mean, this is just again back to your point. You just don't realize the the size, and like I said, it was the only time. I mean, we entrusted. Lop song our lives right he I mean we we the whole trip people my wife thought we were out of our minds right and she's like you got to be out of your gourd you're 55 years old you're going to fall. you're gonna go for two weeks i've never taken a two-week vacation in my life right i mean it was like and i and you're on the other side of the world there's no there's actually decent well better communications than i anticipated but this was an example of us um so I, I hopefully we can go a little longer because I got a couple more things I want to talk about. And, and you started alluding on it and you sort of like they make you feel good. And, and so talk about making you feel good. I wanted I don't want to stop. I, I want to make sure we talk about your your 501c3, uh, your not for profit, mm. uh, make others greater. Uh, my experience and we, we talked a little bit about about it, but right, we sort of alluded to the difference between Sherpas and porters and others. I mean, when I was there, our porter, like our Sherpas were our guides, but our porters were the guys that carried all our gear. And I think we paid those guys $5 a day plus three meals. And they were lining down the street in Pankara to join us. So, I mean, this was a good gig for them. And, and so my point is, is that a, a small amount of money goes an enormous amount away, a long way to do good in, in Nepal in particular. And so you started this this uh, make others greater uh, charity, and I, I just I want to give a shout out. And Jan, mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping we can put a link in the show notes so that if anybody wants to donate, they they have an opportunity. But you but Gary, tell it. us a little bit about what you what you're doing because it's it's phenomenal from my research. Yeah, I mean, like you know what you what you said, John. You know we, you know we're a very small nonprofit. You know. Probably nine. I think last year, ninety nine point eight percent, or ninety nine percent, let's say, of every dollar we received went direct to source. Right. The other two or three percent is what, uh, not even hosting fees. I, I, my, me and my wife take care of that kind of costs, you know, separately and privately. Uh, you know, but you have to obviously have some bank fees, etc. When you start wiring money or moving money from place to place, but. You know, it's we, we deal in 20s, hundreds, and on occasion, you know, thousands. But, uh, you know, we just sent a shipment to the village in Nepal. Just uh, actually, it should be arriving here in the next few days. That, you know, for $600, you know, I'm buying thousands of Band-Aids, you know, hundreds of uh, compression straps, you know, four or five sets of crutches, you know, five, four or five medical kits to place in certain areas around the villages. So if something was to happen, you know, they could at least administer some basic first aid before getting them to a health post. And that's kind of what we try to do. Uh, I mean, Nima now in his village, and I was just in his village a year and a half ago. I mean, at one point he was the poorest, dirtiest Sherpa boy there. And now he has built a school and we supply that school with supplies and books. Uh, and he's basically sort of the mayor of that village, you know, with a huge focus on education and health and safety. And I kind of just said, hey, let's take this to another level, Nima, and maybe see if we can kind of expedite and improve 
to maybe some other surrounding villages. And that's kind of how the whole idea started. We had always privately supported, I mean, my very dear friends and, and my family, uh, a number of children. But, you know, uh, like I said, a little bit of money goes a super long way. And, uh, and pretty much every last penny we source in country. Uh, you know, I can buy probably 100 times more pencils in Kathmandu for the cost, uh, you know, here in the U.S. And that's before yeah. you even start shipping things. So, but it's really, really good. You know, it's again, it's small. We're happy. Uh, we're changing. Our focus is, is health, safety and, uh, you know, education, primarily for the younger folks out there in the world. And uh, uh, yeah, it could make me feel better. And the people that get behind me and that know that uh, somebody's going to have a better day because of it, you know, in a very remote area. It's awesome. I mean, the bottom line is twenty five, fifty, hundred dollars. It, it, it's it, it. You might as well put a couple of zeros on it here in the United States. I mean, it it's just incredible right. how much twenty five bucks will do in in Nepal, as you said. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that because Thank it's uh, it, it is to me it's a it's you know part of what I do and the reason I'm the whole disruptor mantra is sort of to help give back to the community after a long a tenuous. Uh, illustrious, I guess, career here. Um, so anyway, we're at the top of the hour, Yard. I, I've got a couple more things we can talk about, but if, if we have time or it's up to you guys. Um, I, I mean, this has been I, I have cool. a, um, I have a, uh, a connection for my active listening observations that I'd like to make as kind of our end point, John. I think that it'll Okay. Really bring everything together. We'll wrap that up, and then we'll have a little. We'll we'll do the the other pieces of this. Yeah, but that works so for me. the yeah. other thing, just so I I want to give it before you do that. Just you know, couple, I knew I'd take an hour talking about Nepal because I could talk for days about it and climbing. But but you've you've also done as I mentioned earlier, you've done some other really cool stuff, which we maybe have another session on or have a sidebar on. But uh, you know, you've done these grueling marathons, and you've done. Um, you're a triat. You're an Ironman triathlete, and and so I mean, you you've obviously shown the world that you can you know basically do anything when you put your mind to it. And so, uh, you know, Jan, um, that that's sort of we we didn't get to some of those, but uh, that's it's all part of your 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 storied uh, story, if you will. So back to you, Jan. So <clears throat> from the very beginning of the of the episode, right? I'm, um just a student of, of the art of the story, right? And the storyline, the archetype, how to paint yourself as the hero and a vision, you know, really bringing that to life and how it affects people via that positive ripple. And so this entire time, it's been beautiful because the overarching concept is your dream is possible regardless of obstacle, right? So... Gary went through these different stages of what he believed his dream was capable of. And then with each accomplishment, we'll say, or with each end of a goal, that dream was able to take a next step up, right? It was able to make it to the next camp, we'll say. And it started in an abyss. And I think that that's what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of times your dream manifests itself in an abyss at some point in your life. And the dream is not the automatic rise to the summit, but the blessing of being able to visualize the journey from point A to point B. And so you start to run into these obstacles. Gary's 
you know, the first, you know, you, you, people are saying that it's not possible to climb with one arm or it's not possible to lead this group of people up there. It's impossible to do this. It's impossible to do that. And, but then you start walking and you just keep going and it's a, it's an accumulation of, well, we accomplished that. And the next thing is, ah, eh, screw it. Let's do Let's, let's go to the next level. Let's go to the next level. You know, the Sherpa comes in and you don't even necessarily believe it's possible, but then you get other people that start to believe in your momentum more than you do. And they're unlocking new pieces of yourself that you have permission to access now. And it's this giant group effort to Gary's point that starts to motivate each other. And then John, to your point, you walk up on this path that you're banking on. You're like, okay, my dream is possible. I'm going to head this direction. I know exactly where I need to go. And then you get there and a freaking avalanche covered it up. And you're like, shit. Well, now I don't know if I can make it across. But what I love when you guys started talking about the Sherpa mentality, it's what really punched me in the face is that this overarching episode is just you look at that avalanche and the majority of people would say, I need a helicopter to come pull me out, you know, <laughs> or I quit. I was relying on that path to be there. My dream is now impossible. But the Sherpa is like, all right, time to get serious and fiddle our way across because that's just how you need to get it done. So regardless of whether the path that you thought was there, it actually exists or if it's completely destroyed, there's still a pathway to accomplishing what you set out to accomplish if you choose to see it as an opportunity. And Whoa. this entire episode is just absolutely phenomenal because when it comes to allowing people to have the permission to seek greatness in themselves, that is what this all really comes down to for me. So I'm just absolutely mind blown. This is a beautiful episode. This is going to impact a lot of people. This is, I knew this would be fun. Actually, mm-hmm. one, 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 one sort of point to, 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 to jump on top of that comment especially for us, for your apex chasers, right? So chasing the apex makes it sound like you're trying to get to the summit. What I always tell people in in this avalanche story is sort of a good example of that. We had already been to our summit, Montepaturi base camp, and then ultimately to Annapurna base camp. Once you get to the top, and and I'm I'm sorry, Gary, we didn't get to talk about your Hillary step story, unless you want to go into it. But you get to the summit, you're essentially halfway done. You got to figure out how to come back down. And a whole lot of people don't make it down, right? They make it up and then they, something happens. I sometimes say it's harder to get down than it is to get up. So when you're chasing that apex or you're trying to get that summit, don't forget, you still got to come back down so you can summit the next time. And you, so that you can give back. It's that, that little bit up, little bit down, you know, it's never really a, a true up. I love that. I absolutely love that idea, right? Just a little up, little down. And that's, and that's people say falling in love with the process. They say a whole bunch of different ways to try to explain what that feels like. Mm-hmm. But it's generally what I've really realized is the whole reason why I push myself so hard to go out and seek achievement or to push people or do motivational speaking is not because I want any of it for myself, right? It's because if I go out and I accomplish this, I'm A kind of validating myself and giving myself permission to pursue the next goal. But then there's a ton of other people that are watching what we do and say, okay, now I have permission to seek this next goal because this has been accomplished. Mm -hmm. And it's that I think is a big internal motivator for me is not to chase success so much for personal gain, but to showcase what's possible to people. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I I love about this entire episode. Mm -hmm. So, 
anyway, so right Gary, any, any, any parting thoughts or stories or, I mean, I, I, and we'll have a little parting ceremony here in a second, but uh, right. No, I think a lot of I think a lot of things were, were have been said been said very very nicely. I mean, that was a nice wrap up uh, from you, Jan, for sure. You know, and it's funny how we're on very similar pages, and you use the phrase the permission to dream. You know, and I tend to use the phrase sometimes we have to give ourselves the permission also to dream and also to succeed, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you know, and on that note, you know, I just want to say it's been it's been a real privilege, and thanks for thanks for inviting me and starting off my week on this very high note. And uh, hopefully, you know, God willing, it's going to be a good week. And uh, uh, yeah, I don't know if we're going to share that last little video just to remind us what is yeah. possible. You know, together we'll do that. But before we do that, uh, if we were in person, um, I would have the opportunity to present you with a, a ceremonial scarf. Uh, which is very customary in, in Nepal when you are, are leaving. And it's a symbol of uh, thank you and uh, good luck and safety and stuff. So I took the liberty and I sent both of you a a, a, a scarf. So here's my scarf. So we're going to have a virtual sort of scarf. So what I'm going to do, Gary, is I'm going to pretend uh, to virtually hand you this scarf and you can put it on and we'll wrap this show up. So here you go, pal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So you probably can give us a little more background on these scarves, but this this is actually the one I got in Nepal, and the ones that you have uh, are ones that I uh, I've bought and I give out to my friends. Um, but it's sort of a way you, like I said, when you start to leave and you get on the airplane or you leave the, the base camp or whatever, a lot of times you're presented with these these ceremonial scarves. So I just wanted to say uh, namaste. Yes, yes, yes. And Tashi... Delka or Delka. Is you know, that right? Almost. Tashidele. 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 Yes. But, uh, you know, you when you, you know, I think I was talking to you about this, John, the other day, you know, or, but, you know, it sometimes it doesn't matter if it's pronounced correctly or incorrectly, but if you even try to say it and you mean it from your heart, then people hear it from their heart. And, you know, on that note, thank you for the kata. And uh, it will be put in a very, very special place in my awesome. house that I can assure you. So, all right. So, Jan, let's wrap up the. Uh, we got another short video to sort of to wrap this whole thing up and give you a little extra shot of uh, enthusiasm to to go uh, tackle your week. And uh, we got a new month, and uh, hopefully, uh, again, a thank you very of, much, Gary. A lot of new good content to come out. So, we'll uh, we'll show this video, and then I don't know, we're just gonna leave it at that. This, this episode has, has taken care of itself. You pay attention to the next time we put some stuff out. If you're not subscribed already, if you're watching this on YouTube, click the little bell for the notifications. Click subscribe so you can see other things. Look for the show notes. That will be posted later today along with Gary's podcast episode on the Apex podcast about a week from now. All of the resources to the foundation, the other video clips, and YouTube links will be contained in those show notes. So make sure you pay attention to those if you want to learn more about Gary. And so let's go ahead and send ourselves out. Thank you.